What's going on, podcast peeps? Welcome back to the Zero to Hear podcast. I'm your host, Denny Dumas. On tonight's show, good friend of the show, Sean Francis. Uh, he's a local mortgage broker in BC. We get into some detail on the proposed new plan, well, affordable housing plan from Mr. Trudeau, if he's reelected in November. Uh, this is a good one. You're not going to want to miss. Have a listen. Let me know what you think. Mr. Francis back. Mr. Danny Dumont. Action. Hello, my friend. How are we doing? Episode one of Zero to Hear podcast featuring Sean Francis. Episode 70 featuring Sean Francis. I'm glad to be here and I put on a suit for you. Last time I was yeah, here, you, did. I, I, you know, so I got to represent, right? Number one fashionable guy in real estate. In well, thank Vancouver. you. I, I appreciate that. So I, I have a reputation to maintain now. So it's a sick blazer. I thank you. It's called salmon, not pink <laughs> salmon. Thanks for that clarification. Yeah, just if, yeah, just if you're curious. <laughs> uh, I want to start with some current events. We're going to talk about 2019, your take on real estate, uh, on the Greater Vancouver real estate market sure. in 2019. But did you hear Trudeau's announcement uh, last week? Uh, I, I'd heard he's talked about this before, and it's his uh, affordable housing plan if he gets reelected. And one of the things was the... Uh, Federal government mm -hmm. giving up to 10% of a down payment for first-time buyers up to, I think, like 800K. Yeah. Yes. I've heard of it. Yeah. But they're going to own 10% of your home. Correct. First of all, seems almost criminal, but like, is anyone going to take advantage of this? Is anyone going to want the federal government to own 10% of their home? Uh, and is this a way for the federal government to get involved in growing real estate markets like Toronto and Vancouver? It's still in infancy, right? So yeah. it's it's hard to see where this is going to go. But if there's any indication of how this could play out is you would look to see how the provincial um, uh, home buyer incentive program went, right? Because it was the same principle where they could they would lend the money to the home buyer to uh, buy the house and in, in fact at 0% down and that gives the person to get into the opportunity to get into the market and in a market they would not normally be able to get into. Mm -hmm. The challenge is when you start uh, giving the money to the buyers for the down payment, the lender or the broker has to factor in that as a payment on the application, right. which then makes it hard to qualify to begin with, right? And so, really, so for, even though you're not making monthly, yearly payments, you got to factor that in, okay? Right? And so, when it happened provincially. It sounds great on paper, but when you go in and you have someone making marginal income, right, whatever that may be, let's say $50,000, and then you have to slap in a $20,000 um, loan from the provincial government with a payment on it, a lot of people didn't qualify. So it sounded like the government was giving out money to people to help them buy homes, right? But you still have to debt service the, the money that you're borrowing, and you have to debt service the mortgage. And because the deals now are qualified at the... Uh, um, the qualifying rate, which is 5.19, for example, the the amount of home that you can borrow was like minuscule, right? And so what you're going to see is in this federal program when it rolls out, it sounds great, but when you actually get someone that buys a home, for especially in British Columbia, it's going to be very difficult. Maybe it might work for, you know, the Maritime provinces or 
uh, you know, um, you know, and somewhere else where, you know, the price point to get into a home is, you know, in the low 200s, for example, right? But, you know, in the lower mainland, it's just going to make it, uh, it's still going to be very much of a challenge. Is it going to be a problem that, or how is it even going to work? I don't know if they've even talked about this in detail yet, because it was more of like a proposal from Trudeau. But is the federal government actually going to be on title? You know what? There's still yet to be seen, right? right? But I would suspect if they're saying we own 10% of it, then yes, they're going to have to be entitled. If you're saying I own 10%, right? And I don't know how that will get structured with the lawyers, right? But I'm sure there will be some sort of, that might be like a second mortgage or something like that, right? And where, you know, their interest will be released once the house is sold or whatnot, right? But they might structure it as a second mortgage potentially or or one-tenth ownership, right? It can be done that way, I'm sure. And they would get paid 10% of the sale? I don't think they're in it to make the money, right? So I think that they would be only be one-tenth be... owner of the initial purchase price, right? Because so if, if they, they were... put up $20,000, for example, in five years when I sell my home, they're going to get $20,000 back? Whatever they gave, they will get it back, right? Because they're here to help people, not to like, you know, run a business, right? So you that's never, my interpretation of it, right? We'll <laughs> see, we'll see, right? But yeah. uh, I think they're just trying to have like a stake in it to ensure that someone, you know, doesn't foreclose or whatnot, right? So that's the only way to make sure they get their money back is having a percentage of ownership of the property, right? I think that's kind of the vision with it. But it's yet to be seen still, right? Working with first-time home buyers in Greater Vancouver, do you foresee people taking advantage of this or do you see them seeing it more as a negative? They got to qualify, right? right? So if they qualify. So that, you think that is going to be the biggest problem is yes. the 10% adds a payment onto right. their application and that's going to allow them to qualify for less money. Yeah, or not qualify at all. Right. Right, because you have to factor a payment into it, right? On top of fact, carrying the actual mortgage itself, Right. So, you know, okay. but at the end of the day, if you have someone who's a young person that has buckloads of income, I don't know, however situation that may be, they could take advantage of it because they can either have that money coming out of their own savings account to put for the down payment, or they can get this money from the federal government, right, to help support their down payment and then can keep whatever money they had in their savings um, uh, to, pl- to apply to something else. But my understanding of those the, of the, the guidelines is, you can only, your income has to be under a certain threshold to qualify it. I think household income needs to be under 120. 120, correct, yeah. right? So then, once again, that caps you, right? Right. So that's the, that's the trade-off, right? So, you know, if you're that family that makes just a little bit under 120, then maybe it might be something for you. But if you're, if you're a family that needs like a house that's, or a townhouse that's in the $800,000 range, well, then you're out of luck, right? I just don't see a lot of people using it. And like you that's actually a really good point that I didn't know about is that there's going to be a payment that goes onto your mortgage application which is going to allow you to qualify for less money. And it's funny the comment that you make that people with a lot of money <laughs> who are first time buyers would be able to take advantage of this. Well, and because it's people, just saving them 10%. Exactly, but it's 100 you have to make you have to make under 120, right? right? But then you know, how much does 120 really qualify you for, right? And the people who make a lot of money that could technically uh, um, take advantage of this, because they make so much money, they didn't need the program to begin with, right. right? So it always starts with, you know, the chicken or the egg, and, you know, who's it really helping, and does it sound good in paper, right, versus in theory when you have to execute it, right? Right. 
obviously affordability in markets like Greater Vancouver and Toronto are an issue for people who grew up here. Yeah. For young people. This doesn't sound like a great solution. <laughs> yeah, there's uh it's not an easy fix, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know. What would make it better? Yeah, you know, well, you talked to a lot of economists and stuff like that, right? And um you know, there's different ways or, of, of making things better. But for example, um, density, right? Mm-hmm. You had to go up, right? Oh, if it's smaller, before. right? Uh, you got to basically look at, you know, 500 square feet, like less is more, right? You know, mm-hmm. and, you know, growing up, we were, for example, used to growing up in a big back home uh, with two car garage, big driveway, big backyard. Now, maybe what you normally grew up in with a big house, you'd grow up in a, in a townhouse, right? And when kids, instead of playing in their driveway, they'll be playing at the clubhouse at the townhouse complex that they live in, right? Mm-hmm. So I think people have to kind of get used to that reality. Maybe that might be the way to go, right? Because the incomes in BC are not going up year over year compared to the values of homes, Right. right? Mm-hmm. So if you want to keep it affordable for the, the level of income in the area that you live, you would have to have um, a density, right? That's the answer. Or um, people need to be prepared to move out to the suburbs, right? But then what kind of like work-life balance are you going to have if you have all your talented individuals living in mission, right? And people want to be, you know, if you're a young person, you want to live downtown, you want to be part of the energy and and then at the same time, the companies that employ these people want the young people to be able to be close to work so they can show up on the weekends if necessary or to do overtime and whatnot. And you want to be with like-minded individuals, right? So hence, you know, making smaller but newer places, density, and maybe having rapid transit in t- taking you to these other areas in the hub, right? For example, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're, we're out here in Burnaby right now doing this. Burnaby is could potentially be a new hub for for companies like our office for bespoke lending solutions is in Burnaby, and we believe this is a great location because this could be the next big hub where Yale Town used to be and what you know um, where all the head offices were, right? Because the price per square foot mm. in Vancouver is a lot more expensive than where it is here, and it's a lot more expensive here than where it would be, let's say, in Surrey or Langley, for example, right? How do we adjust this entitled mindset where? People who grew up in Greater Vancouver assume that it's their right to own a single-family piece of land in Vancouver. Well, yeah, that's not that was never the mentality that I had growing up, right? Um, but yeah, you know, you hear that, right? But nothing in in this world is like is is uh, is guaranteed, right? So you got to have the work ethic, and you got to be able to, you know, earn your earn the right, earn your stripes, right? I think that's like you talk about moving out to the suburbs. I think that's just the decision that people have to make. And there's nothing that, wrong with that. Like a no. lot of people turn their nose up to living in the suburbs. This is like, you know what, what is the alternative, right? Because in the day you got to live somewhere. So why would you, you know, make yourself stressed out for a place to live when there's other things in life that's important, such as travel, um, you know, or being able to, you know, have, have a lifestyle that you like, which is maybe owning a car or be able to dress how you want to dress, right? So it's one component of your lifestyle need. Right. It's a big one. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, you got to you, you got to pick your battles. You, you can't have what is it? What is, what is, what is, this, is this a term? You can't champagne test champagne taste on a beer budget or something. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, I sound older than I really am. But, yeah, <laughs> is that a conversation you have with clients? Uh, in terms of what? 
in terms of based on your income, you can qualify for this, but like, let's talk a little bit about lifestyle. What type of lifestyle do you oh, want to live? Do you want to travel? Do you want to have kids? Definitely. Do you want to do these things? Right. I'm people's trusted advisor. So yeah. I like to, you know, share with them my situation. Right. Cause I did, I lived the whole downtown, downtown thing. You saw me, I lived downtown for a little while. And then when I have the opportunity, I moved with my wife to the suburbs. Right. And we're, we're extremely happy living in the suburbs. Right. Um, you know, for our lifestyle, you know, my office here is in Burnaby, but I, when I commute back to Langley, right. And for my lifestyle, it, it's, it's a good fit, right. Um, because it allows us to be able to have the lifestyle that we like and enjoy. What people, what do you think a lot of young people are, are realistic about that stuff? Or do you think a lot of people in greater Vancouver, and I've heard some numbers in terms of like across the board in Canada, on average, I think people spend like 35 to 40% of their monthly income on housing. Well, Whereas, there's guidelines, right? They yeah. say the, the, the official guidelines is no more than 39% of your family income could go to mortgages. Yeah. And then no more than 45% of your family income can go towards mortgage and all other debts, which is property taxes, heating, uh, car payments, student loans, all that, right? But the reality is I've seen deals, you know, where the the ratios are as high as 50, 55%, mm. right? But it's like, um, it, it's a little bit skewed because, for example, sometimes the applications, the income that we're that people are generating, we can include, be it rental income, for example, or a situation where somebody uh, gets bonus income, but they just started the job. So you can't include that bonus income. Mm. But you're seeing a lot of Canadians um, living beyond their means, right? And... I guess what's interesting for my job and, you know, anyone that does what uh, I do is we see everyone's financial picture. So we know what's really going on. Right. But a lot of people um, who are we are helping, they don't know the backstory on how deals get done. Mm -hmm. And they might be, for example, a plumber, plumber A and plumber B. Plumber A gets a mortgage. He gets it done. He goes to his, his job site. He says, I've been approved. I'm living in this one million dollar house. Congratulations. Plumber B is like, I do the exact same thing as plumber A does. And he has a house of $1 million. So I want it as well too. He doesn't know, he, he doesn't know plumber A is getting his father-in-law on the deal, his, his wife on the deal. He's got, you know, a massive down payment, which is gifted to him. Right. All he knows is he owns, earns his house. Right. Plus plumber B sees plumber A rolling up to the job site and some sort of like, I don't know, Cadillac Escalade or whatever. And he's like, okay, well, not only do you want, you, Sean, I want you to finance this deal for me. I want you to help me finance this truck that I'm going to like also have, which is going to screw up my approval because I can't afford either one of those, right? Which happens, right? So, um, you know, people don't walk around with their T4 stamped to their face and what their income level is. So they don't know that. All they see is these external things, right? And a lot of people, which is what I believe now is, they're able to express themselves in the way they dress and the clothes they, 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 they wear, the, car, the cl cars they drive, um, and not so much their homes, but even their homes now, right? And so there's this level, there's this, there's this um, escalating ways of trying to define themselves, right? And it's, it's going to become a little bit of a trap because people are getting to uh, um, homes that they can necessarily not necessarily afford, right? Is that the worst part of our society right now? And it's this, it's this phenomenon 
like keeping up with the Joneses. Like, oh, my buddy bought this new watch, so you know, I gotta I gotta show him up. Or he drives in a BMW. I want to drive. A BMW. Well, Instagram contributes, social media contributes uh, contributes to that as well too. For and, sure. Um, I guess I another thing that just kind of uh, hit my my mind. That I wanted to address this too is. We're in 2019, the way people are living their lives are a lot different in the 50s and 60s, for example, because I meet families and they're very comfortable making mortgage payments for their whole life, right? They'll, they mm -hmm. can, they can die or retire mm -hmm. uh, with a mortgage and they could be perfectly fine with that. Whereas if that was in the 50s or 60s, totally. they were like, this house has to be paid off by retirement and I can't, they would consider their life a failure if the house was not paid off. Mm -hmm. But now I've said to people, I've, I've done deals for people where, you know, um, they're like, okay, as long as we can afford the monthly payments, that's what we want. And it's my responsibility as a mortgage broker to go over the pros and cons of that type of behavior. I'm saying, okay, individual, you are 30 years old. By the time you're 60, we can have this mortgage paid off. But if you're individual 50 years old and we take you to a 30-year amortization because that's the long, largest we can be, uh, take it, then... You have 30 years to pay it off and you're 50. So you're going to be having a mortgage well into your retirement. And then they're like, that's okay. I'm fine with that. So, you know, at the end of the day, we have a responsibility to inform our clients and give them a, um, a game plan. But then we give them their scenarios and they then give us the feedback. Right. And so a lot of people are, what's important is lifestyle. Mm -hmm. They want to have comfortable payments. Right. And they want to be able to have their multiple trips a year. And that, that is just a symptom of the society we're living in right now. So, Back to your question is it's like yeah people want are taking over lifestyle over their financial responsibilities and if you were to see the the stats it's you know their savings rates have gone down uh, but their incomes haven't gone up so it has to something has to change or something has to there's a give somewhere why do we care though why is that so important why do we give a shit what fucking sally walking down the street thinks of you in your fancy shoes or you know whatever <sighs> I, I, I take I, so much pride in going to Marshall's every year in, in Palm Springs and buying underwear for four bucks and buying a 12 pack of socks for six ninety nine. I think that's just, it comes down to your personality and how you're raised. And then also too, it comes down to people are getting influenced a lot more from social media than before. Right. And, um, you know, I don't know where I heard this, right. But there was a, there, I was, I was told, or I read or I was told, you know, Someone who is extremely wealthy, that wealth can basically be gone within three generations, right? So what happens is if you're the first generation, you've earned the wealth, you've brought it up. Your mm. second generation is used to a certain type of lifestyle mm. and didn't have that hunger in the belly to be able to. And the, also the, 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 the process to develop that, right? Because everything was kind of like set up for them. And then mm -hmm. by the time the third generation comes around, they're so far removed from what took the first generation to, to make the money to get them to where they are, mm -hmm. then they start to squander it, right? Because right? they don't want to generate it, right? So that is, um, you know, it comes down to how we were raised, right? And then baby boomers were, you know, you know, if you talk to anyone who's a baby boomer, you know, they had to like ration their food, right? They had to, you know, they didn't know where their next meal is coming from. Now it's just like, we live in a generation now where people probably are spending more money eating out than buying groceries, right? Mm -hmm. So that all comes down to, you know, the, the fundamentals of cooking and stuff like that. People, you know, that's, that has been lost on many people, right? Now that you're a dad. Yes. Little man is 
Just over a year. Shout out to my little guy, Ari. Daddy Ari. loves you. <laughs> yeah, he's a stud, but you know. That's Are you me. consciously thinking about that in terms of like yeah. not spoiling definitely. the kid so he definitely. develops a bit of a work ethic and he. I think that's very important to build confidence in your kids, confidence in yourself, right? Because if you're not confident, if you don't believe in yourself, how are you going to be able to, you know, sell yourself to someone in terms for for business and or for relationships mm. or anything, right? And so as a father, that's something that we're trying, my wife and I are trying to incorporate into him and every day, right? And uh, that work ethic, right? You know, nothing's given, right? Even at a young age, right? If you get the right work ethic, you know, I, I don't know, like, once again, you had, you know, one very smart individual, one guy that's not as smart, but motivated and dedicated and always learning, I'll take the guy, give me that guy every single day of the week, right? Because he's going to take what you've given him, respect it, um, appreciate it, and cultivate that and take it to the next level. Mm -hmm. Whereas the person who's naturally gifted, who who's never had to like, you know, exercise their brain or to like de develop themselves, you know, they might just hit a plateau and then you might see them doing well because they're natural talents, but they're just going to go like this, right? And in life, it's like, it's not what you've done uh, for me. It's what have you done for me lately? And you always have to take things to the next level and level up, mm -hmm. right? How do you instill that in kids? Like, is that a, is that a, uh, conscious conversation that you have with your wife saying we, like, we, look, we can't give this kid ice cream every day, even though he's begging for it and crying for well, it. Well, it starts at the young age. You have, totally. it's like a, it's like a, that's a very good question. Like, it's like, that's something like when you start dating, you try to like determine what kind of individual yeah. they are yeah. already. Right. Cause you want to be on the same page. Right. And, um, you, I think you also do it by, uh, by an example, right. If you are a parent and you, you know, you're a father and, you, you know, you, your son sees you reading or your son sees that you have a goal of maybe you open your own business and growing it or whatever. And he sees that. Right. Then you inspire him. Right. You you I think you're 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 going to be able to get the response from your kids better by demonstrating that behavior than forcing it down them. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of putting them in the right environment with people of like minded, you know, like families and kids of like-minded uh, personalities mm -hmm. and then also you as a parent to be able to execute on what you're trying to install in your kids to begin with doesn't sound easy eh, it doesn't but it's like it, it it's if you, you know if you live a lifestyle like it's like almost like dieting right it's like yeah. dieting isn't they said that i was watching another static they said like diets only two percent of people who diet are able to like maintain the, their weight off right but really that low yeah it's very low right but if you live a lifestyle of eating well working out being active then that's not really dieting that's just living your life right, right? so it's not really hard if you continue to make it a, like a habit and it's ingrained in the way you are and who how, however you are mm -hmm. then it's not as difficult because it's just comes second nature the, so the challenge then is starting those routines how to build those routines yeah. right starting the routines at a very young age where it's like not even question right yeah. like if you know if for example right now like we're brushing his teeth right he's like a year old he has no teeth he has like four <laughs> teeth in his mouth <laughs> and in the morning time i'm brushing my teeth and i have his toothbrush in his mouth and he's like it's not really making a difference for his teeth yeah but when it really matters when he's five and six or seven eight nine and ten he's going to enjoy brushing his teeth because he's been doing it from get-go right yeah. so it's not he's not going to question it right whereas if we didn't try to brush his teeth now 
And then when it really matters, when he's five and try to stick a toothbrush in his mouth, he's like, what is this? I don't like this in my mouth. Yeah. And, you know, so that's, that is what I think is the recipe for success. So ask me in six years if he's still brushing his teeth <laughs> and I'll let you know. I'll be able to tell just by the photos if he has any teeth left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he'll be good. He'll be good. He's a Francis, right? So. Uh, let's talk real estate. Sure. 2019. Yeah. We were chatting before we started taping about uh, last time we did this podcast, just like predictions for what, what was going to come in 2019. Yeah. And we both kind of saw a slower year coming, but what do you seeing right now well one stat i want to throw out there and i want you to comment on i heard uh i think it was the president of the real estate agree of greater vancouver um phil Fillmore. shout out to phil phil's a good do you know Fillmore? i've seen phil but yeah. I, I don't think i've met him face to face he posted something on facebook i think it was at the end of july so maybe sometime in august Fourteen thousand two hundred realtors in greater vancouver more than 10,000 of the 14,000 have not done one deal in 2019. That is shocking. I'm not surprised. Isn't that insane? I'm not surprised. I knew that it was going to be difficult, but I am. that is a shocking number. So just to give some background not for one listeners out there. Yeah. To give some background for listeners out there, on a typical year, usually 40% plus of those 14,000 realtors don't do a deal. They're like part-time people. They have other jobs. They really just hold a license Maybe they work for a developer or, you know, whatever that doesn't do a project that year or whatever, but there's lots of realtors that aren't full-time realtors that don't do deals. So let's say on an average year, 6,000 of 14,000 don't do a deal, but it's almost double. Well, like I said, I'm surprised, but I'm not surprised because I think it's the 80-20 rule, right? You know, 80% of the business is done by 20% of the people, right? And this year is just a, a greater symptom of that because when times are good, a lot of people rush into the, the space to capitalize on the opportunity. But when the going gets tough, then you start to see people exiting, right? And so that is a, a strong example of, you know, if you're a marginal broker or marginal realtor, you're not going to get the business because there's just too much on the line right now mm. and clients' expectations have increased, right? And you have to deliver a certain type of response and to get yourself uh, the right to earn that business. Isn't it crazy though? Like obviously 2019 is a slower year for us. It's a slower year for most in real estate. The number of deals is down. 2016 and 17 were crazy. Yep. But this is a normal market and people it are is. freaking out. Yeah. This people is, were, this is what people were spoiled before. But there's a lot of negative comments being like, I don't know where my next paycheck's going to come from. A lot of agents buying listings, meaning like they te- they're telling sellers that their property's worth a couple hundred grand more than what it actually is just to get the listing. And then oh. they're c- consistently reducing price. <laughs> it's a wild, I, I just don't understand all the negative feedback because for me, I got into the business 2014. 2014 was as bad or worse than 2019, but that's a normal market. Like sales ratios are, it's not really buyer's market of less than 10% mm-hmm. selling every uh, every month. And it's not a seller's market over 20% selling every month. It's like 16%, which is normal. So I, I don't understand all the negative feedback from realtors. I, like, I, think, I think it's a, a reflection of people who were spoiled, right? And you had a lot of people who became realtors and mortgage brokers 
that normally would not choose these professions because there was not a level of passion involved in it. They were focused on the income potential that it can generate for you. And then if you do well in this space, you can earn a great uh, um, um, lifestyle and income, right? But there's work to be involved. There's work to be done, right? And, you know, you could be a marginal broker realtor and you can have earned money. Um, you know, I remember, I don't think, I remember, I don't remember we discussed this when I came to your last podcast, but I went to an open house and, um, it was like, this is exactly how it went. It was an open house in Vancouver. It was the height of the market. It was crazy time. And the realtor was like on her phone, uh, texting. And it was just like, take a look around. And she was like, it wasn't very helpful. Didn't sell the property in terms of like talk it up or the features of the property. She just basically was like, come on in, do your own thing. She would text the whole time. I think myself and my buddy, we were there for about 10 minutes. We we took the tour ourselves. And the, at the end of the day, it was a Saturday. We were, the, we were there on Saturday and it went on, it went on the market on Friday. And the response was, we're taking best and final offers on Monday morning. So let us know what that will be. Uh, thanks so much. Bye-bye. That was the, you know, and, mm-hmm. I, and I'm saying that's a reflection of all realtors, I'm sh- uh, you know, but that was, and the, I'm guaranteed or most likely that probably sold over asking, mm-hmm. right? Because that was just a symptom of what was going on in the market at the time, mm-hmm. right? But now you definitely got to like sell the property. You got to like invest in marketing and you have to show your clients to even get the listing, what your strategy is to be able to get that property sold for asking price or over asking, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's work. And for some people that's very intimidating, right? So yeah, it's, it is a challenge, right? But it's rewarding because you're going to earn a paycheck, but you're also earning the right to uh, work with that client and their f- potential um, a base of friends and family that comes along with that. Obviously, like you guys are having a good year. Yeah, yeah. Is this your best year? This is my best so? year yet. I'm, I'm very proud to say that I'm having my best year yet and in a down market, right? So, uh, you know, I think that's a, a, a symptom of, or not a symptom, a, a reflection of the great people that I get to work with in my office who are inspiring me with how they conduct their business and how they're able to grow their book of business. And also two of the innovative ways I'm trying to grow my customer base. Right. And, uh, you know, in difficult opportunities, there's opportunities that present itself and we're trying to uh, capitalize on that. And you might be saying, well, well, Sean, how does that happen? Right. But there's a lot of people who are, for example, self-employed or people who uh, who have income, but they can't get uh, approval because they're foreign buyers or whatnot, right? And there is lenders out there who are, are looking to work with those type of individuals. And me as a broker, I'm finding creative ways to find approval for this market segment of the, of the market that's not being serviced, mm-hmm. right? And we're, get, we're finding good results. What are... Plus, we're fun guys to work with as well, too. Absolutely. I mean, your success this year is not dependent on like the work you put in this year, although in some parts it is, but for me, it's more like you've built up a business. You've spent hundreds and thousands of hours working your butt off for the last, how long have you been independent now? Four Uh, or five years? Four years now. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, for me, success in a slow market is all the work you put in, in the past. I would definitely say so. Right. It's all the phenomenal experiences you've had with clients it's them now referring you to their friends it's the reputation you've built in the industry 
Whereas a lot of people are very short-term thinking in a slow market thinking, how can I get this next deal? Whereas like the people who have been successful for a long time are thinking, how do we continue to grow long-term? We're not really concerned. And I would assume you'd agree that numbers this year are not going to make or break my career. Like I'm thinking, how do we continue to grow? How do we continue to provide opportunity for the members on our team to keep growing for the next 20 years, right? The strategy that I personally have for myself and I'm and and how we like to coach everyone in the office is um, we want to be in the space for 10 or 15 years, mm-hmm. right? So what are you going to do to in, within the context of operating your business to be successful, not only for this year, but also for year 10 and year 15, mm-hmm. right? Ethically doing your deals, right? Because if you don't do it, uh, if you don't do your deals ethically, you're out of the business, right? Um, but that also too, you have to weigh that with the uh, the idea of I got to need to I need to make a certain level of income right now to be able to uh, live and have a lifestyle because you can't worry mm. about year ten if you can't take care of year one, right? Mm. So it's a, there's a it's a little bit of a fine line, mm. but you do want to build for the future. And how do you do that? Is you you give advice to somebody that who's let's say twenty five who's buying a house to be able to have a way for them to be able to exit out of their mortgage if they need to get out of their mortgage without a massive penalty. Because if I'm going to be wanting to work with that person in the future, you give them the advice where if they need to get out of the mortgage early, they're not going to hit a, get a big penalty and then blame myself, for example. Mm -hmm. So for example, if someone's buying an investment property to flip, right. And, um, you know, I've given the pros and cons of going fixed versus variable, right? And whereas if you go variable, the penalty is three months interest. Whereas you go fixed, it could be a massive penalty. And then all that profit they would have gotten would have been gone, mm. right? Because they have to go to pay it to the bank. Whereas if they had taken my advice and taken a variable, much, which would have been a higher rate to be, a higher rate initially, but overall, because they're only keeping it for six months or a year, they're going to be better off, right? Those are the kind of things, right? And like I said, in a bad market, in a good market, people's mistakes get um, covered up because, you know, the house goes up in value. They can sell it for more than what they bought it for and and everyone's happy. But if their margins are, their income, their values are compressed because you can only sell the house for so much more money in a mm-hmm. down market, then every single penny counts, right? And so when you give someone good service and you're giving them ethical service and they have a good result, they can respect that. And then you can earn the right to be able to get more business from them in the year two or year five or where it may be, and they'll refer their friends and family to you. And that's kind of how you build a sustainable business. You you have how many brokers on your team now? Uh, we have a team of 17 of us now. Good for you guys. That's yeah. Awesome. So when we first started, it was four of us, including the office manager. Yeah. Now we're up to 18 of us. How do you present that exact point in terms of regardless of the situation, regardless of whether it's your first deal or your 120th deal, how do you present to new brokers that in every situation you need to give the client the best advice? So, and the way I'm coming at this question is I was in a listing appointment today after listening to the homeowner's full situation, the property was tenanted. So it's going to be difficult to sell, especially in a slower market. My advice to her was, are you in a hurry? If not, like, let's wait till the spring. The tendency is going to be towards the end of the agreement. It's going to be a lot easier to sell when someone can move in. Whereas someone who I think is maybe not done a deal in 2019 or a little bit more 
or a little bit earlier in their career, a little bit more desperate for a quick paycheck is just like, yeah, let's get it on the market. Let's move this thing right now. Uh, yeah, like I, I knew exactly where this was going when you said it, because you have to internally, the realtor or the broker, you need to be able to approach the situation where I'm prepared to lose this deal. I'm prepared mm -hmm. to lose this client. I'm prepared to not get the listing. I'm prepared not to get someone's mortgage. Mm -hmm. If it's a half a million dollar mortgage, which is a, a very good size mortgage to a million dollar size mortgage, which is a wonderful size mortgage, right? I need to approach every single transaction. If I don't get it, that's fine. I, I need to be able to live with that because yeah. then when you have that attitude going into it, the meeting is so much more smoother with the client because your advice is unbiased and you're not affected with the outcome, right? But when you are concerned with the outcome, then your truth sometimes could be not the truth. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying people are, you know what I mean? Like what I'm trying to say is it doesn't flow as the, 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 the dynamic between you and the client it doesn't seem as smooth, right? Mm -hmm. And you can stick to your guns and say, you know what? You're buying this investment property. You're going to sell in six months. It doesn't matter if you're getting a, a variable rate of prime plus one versus, you know, a five-year fixed of, of, of 4.99 mm. or because I don't want you to be paying, you know, $15,000 in penalty, right? But at the end of the day, if you told your client that your truth, and then they still choose to go the other route, then you've done your job and you can live with that con your, your conscience, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the, the attitude I would have. And that's the attitude I know that that's how you've had with your clients, right? Because what's gonna probably happen is if the client goes at it with the other um, realtor, it's not gonna get sold and they're gonna get frustrated and they're gonna get fired anyways. And mm -hmm. they're gonna come to you because you know, Danny did give me the right advice and I should have listened to him and they kicked themselves. Mm -hmm. I've seen it happen, right? And if you start in the, if you're in the business long enough, you start to see the patterns and then you got to trust the process. I think that's like a very important comment, right? Which is we say to the younger brokers or people who are new is just like, you know what? Be firm, believe in your guide, your information and trust that it's all going to work out in the end because that's the only thing you have to have faith, right? Is it difficult for a lot of young brokers to understand? To put that into practice? Well, when you're new and you're 100% a commission and um, every deal is more meaningful than someone who's established, for example, and who's been around for five or 10 years. And they might have a partner that also has uh, income coming in. So it's a lot easier said than done. But that's why this space is not for everyone, right? Because especially if you're new to industry, like, there's a barrier to entry, right? Which is, you know, the fact that, the, you know, the, the income or the cash doesn't start flowing for several months to a year to two years for some people, right? But those people who are good will not allow one transaction to define their success, right? And yeah, you're going to, you know, I've lost, you know, some big deals and it's like a kick to the stomach, right? But it's just like, you know, it's part of the business. And yeah, like you feel sorry for yourself for about two, three minutes, five minutes, whatever, but you pick yourself up and you got to keep it moving, right? Mm -hmm. Because no one's crying for you, for you, right? Before we started taping, you mentioned something about um, having a question for me about uh, like, having the conversation with a seller saying your neighbor sold for this much in 2017, your property's not worth that much. Do you remember what that was? No, but I, that, that is, that, that always goes into my mind. Like, how do you, how do, how does that, how does that go down? Right. Because, you know, I think to myself, right. You know, you know, people get their property tax assessments coming in. Right. And the property oh, tax man. assessments are, I think it's like 10%. <laughs> 
they're actually, whatever the property tax assessment is, the values are like 10 to 15 to even 20% lower than what the property tax assessment is. Mm -hmm. And they're going to say, but Denny, my property taxman says this. Mm -hmm. So how does that conversation go, right? And then how can, I? my heart goes out to the realtors. Like, how are you going to be able to convince a client to let you be their realtor when you're trying to sell it for less than what it sold for before? Mm -hmm. And they've only sold maybe never before in their life or once because they haven't seen this before. So they, you know, it's hard. You, you can't blame the customer either because they've never seen this before. Like, sure. This is a very different phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. They're used to hearing houses going up, you know, buy someone for 300,000 and it goes to 375 the next year, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, how can you verbally explain this to a client when they have to go through this journey to really understand what it takes for the property to be sold and what it, it really is. It's, the value of the home is not what the neighbors sells for it. The value of the home is what the market says, right? Mm -hmm. And that's two different things. That's a great point. And it's not an easy thing to do. My approach on it is ridiculous honesty. So it's, sure, this is your property assessment. I don't even, I, honestly, I use this line all the time. I don't even look at them. They don't mean anything. Yeah, it's, it's a snapshot in time. It's like, it's literally a snapshot in time that but was like six months in the past. <laughs> it's a completely approximate snapshot in time too, right? Yeah. No one from BC Assessment is coming into your home and looking at it, looking at where it's located on the street, looking at that it backs onto a park or that it backs onto a busy street. Like no one's looking at that. Those can be the difference of a couple hundred thousand dollars. So it's an approximation. It's like one guy who has this big... A square of a neighborhood and is just saying, okay, average price per square foot in this neighborhood are this, your square footage is this, here's your property assessment. So they're very approximate numbers in strong markets and weak markets. I really don't put much weight on them. If your property assessment is a lot higher than market value, maybe it's a marketing tool to say, okay, it's priced $100,000 under assessment, but nobody, like competent realtors don't really take that into account okay but like so how do you present that yeah, it's and then it's market data so like showing your uh, showing your expertise in a neighborhood saying look we represented a sale three doors down or a couple blocks away they had a fully renovated kitchen it was a pretty similar style home sold for this your property assessment's one hundred fifty thousand dollars higher than that your home unfortunately is not worth more than that home they had a hundred thousand dollars worth of updates that your home does not have a lot of our clients right now are doing the transition. So single family homes have come down more than strata properties in the last 12 to 18 months. Yeah, so a lot of young families, I'm sure a lot of them, you're seeing some mortgage applications for this stuff, are looking to move from strata to single family. Sure. Because the now gap- it's time to do that. Yeah. The gap's closed, totally. And so they're saying, well, my neighbor's con my neighbor's two bedroom condo sold for six fifty. Why are you telling me mine's worth five seventy-five? And the way to the way that most people understand it is looking at the entire equation, right? So you're not just selling your home, you're also buying something. True. If you sold your home for six if you sold your condo for six fifty this year, or sorry, if you sold your condo for six fifty in twenty seventeen, that house would have cost one point two. Sure. If you're selling today, your condo has gone down maybe 10%. Let's say roughly 60K off. Let's say 575, 580. So you've lost 60, $70,000 of equity in your home, in your condo. Sure. But that house is now worth a million fifty. So you're losing 60 grand on the sale. 
but you're gaining $150,000 on the purchase. For sure. So you're net, right? Exactly. So once you explain that equation to a lot of the people that are trying to do this transition right now, it makes a lot of sense to them. And they, they aren't worried so much about the sale figure as they now you express the entire Because their net right? overall situation is more positive. Exactly. This <clears throat> down market opposed to the height of the crazy market. Because if you're, yeah, you just, you, I don't have to re-explain it to you because that's exactly how it is. Exactly. Right? So, yeah. The more difficult conversations are when people are going the other way. So when people are downsizing, when they're selling their family home that they've had for 30 years and they're moving into a two-bedroom condo. Their family home's gone down, in some cases, half a million. Like we had a, this, it sucks, but we had a listing this year that didn't even sell that across the street, a less lesser home sold in 2016 for three, just over 3 million. And their home was worth like 2.1. Yeah. See, that's right. We it, had it listed at 2.5 and it didn't sell. It's a function of time, right? right. You know, like, you, you know, so in know. those situations, the conversation's a little trickier. And Again, with experience and not being desperate for a sale, a lot of the time my advice is, well, what's your urgency? If you if you really don't want to maintain this home anymore, this is the value. And if you want to sell it today, this is where it's going to sell. Otherwise, it, you're just going to list it and it's not going to sell. But if you're not urgent, if you can hang on to it for another year or two and wait for the market to climb or come back, I don't know how long that's going to be. It depends a lot on what the hell Trudeau's up to in Ottawa. Hmm. It depends a lot on interest rates. It depends on stress tests and like a bunch of things that we don't have control over. So that could be 12 months from now. That could be next spring. It could be five years away. So if you're willing to wait, so are we. When you speak right? your truth. Exactly. Then, you know, the people appreciate that because it mm -hmm. makes it, because most people assume that the realtor is going to like, hey, we got to list this thing right away, right? Exactly. But when you start coming at them with, from a, um, a, a value proposition, right? And I think anything, everything in value, anything in life, you got to see what is the value of it, right? And if you come to them with this value proposition, they're gonna almost like stop and they're like, "What? You're you're not trying to pressure me to like list?" Mm -hmm. And you know, that will resonate in their mind, right? Mm -hmm. And you might not get the listing per se, but they might have a coworker that says, "You know what? This Denny guy, mm -hmm. you know." is the real deal, right? He's giving me some great advice, right? Um, and then we're gonna maybe hold off, or that's when you pass that referral my way and I get them like a nice big juicy line of credit, right? And allows them to be able to kind of like meet their whatever cash flow needs that they're dealing with, right? Mm -hmm. Throw some renters in there and then they go rent in a condo until the market's better and yep. then they're happy, right? Yep. Because if you have a, if you just, in that mm -hmm. scenario, the, the house in the height of the market sold for 3 million, right? And now it's, let's say, worth, let's say, 2.1. They're going to realize a loss of $900,000. Mm -hmm. So what is stopping from that person to getting some sort of line of credit, living off of that line of credit because they are cash strapped, for example, for two, three, four, five years rent, right? And you do the math on that. Mm -hmm. And if all of a sudden you pay with interest over five years while you're renting and then turn your home into a rental and, you know, you, you sold your house now for... 3 million versus, you know, 2.1, you're up, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like how you have a trusted advisor that gives you value. You can walk a, a way ahead, right? So, you know, you know, when you start doing those type of things, you know, you're going to get the, the right to earn more referrals. And, you know, if I as a mortgage broker are giving them creative ways and how they can li learn, live a lifestyle and not lose money and whatnot, 
then we're going to do well in this space, right? So, mm-hmm. the, you know, I think part of this whole podcast is trying to inspire the viewers and different ways of doing business, mm-hmm. right? And finding out ways to be creative to like add value to the person that you're working with. Mm-hmm. And then you can then be able to get more business and earn the right to get more referrals. Mm-hmm. I just love that we get to share experience, right? So the stuff that I've been through in business and personal life is so different than what you've been through in business and personal life versus Carl versus... So, and, and I love listening to the real life conversations because you learn so much when people are genuine, yeah. I feel like, and I can take something, if you're talking about your situation of growing from a single broker to now you have 18 people on your team, that's super impressive. And there's things along the way, I'm sure that you probably could have done differently or made mistakes, but that's the valuable information that I want to share with people. A lot of our listeners Zoom, are, uh, are like us, are like young people that are trying to get businesses off the ground or are in real estate or or are mortgage brokers and are at that level where they're a couple years into the business, they want to grow, they don't really know what the next step is. So I'd love to hear a little bit more of how you've gone in a really short period of time, which is very impressive, from being on your own to now a team of 18. And let me start by asking you this. Did you always want to partner? Like when you started mm-hmm. as an individual broker and said, okay, I'm getting busy. I need some help. What was the um, thought process like in terms of bringing on partners rather than starting your own thing, hiring an assistant, bringing on a junior broker, whatever it may be? Um, I always think that there's enough business for everyone out there that who wants it, right? So that was the first thing that went through my mind, right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's better to win and succeed with, your partners or people that you love and care about than to do it by yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. Because you know, when I was at the bank, you know, you would used to work on your deals um, from your home office. Right. And so you were like almost like a lone wolf. Right. And you know, when you get a complicated file approved or whatever, you had no one to share that success with, right. Except for your spouse and main times they're so far removed from the industry. It's just not the same. Yeah. And yes, you have your coworkers at the, in the bank side. Right. But you would see them maybe, at the branch or you would have to meet them for coffee or you would have to meet them in your monthly sales meeting. Right. But what we've got going on and and what we set it up is we work together side by side in a physical location. Right. And so that was something that was very appealing because it's like we were working like as a crew. Right. And, you know, as a pack, right. Like, you know, some of the best workouts I have, I go to CrossFit is when I go to my CrossFit CrossFit class, and the music's blazing and I'm watching the guys, like I'm doing a tough set. I'm watching the guy next to me and he's going hard. I'm like, okay, I gotta go hard too, right? Cause I, I don't wanna like mess up the flow that's going on, right? <laughs> that's what happens in the office, right? And if, if I got a buddy that just did a wonderful, found a wonderful solution for one of the, his clients and he was able to do it and was very complicated. It's like, I learned from that. And then I kind of stored in the back of my head and I now know that scenario comes up. I can speak with authority on it because I know that my business partner was able to get it mm-hmm. done, right? So that is the power of, you know, running it with a, a crew of like-minded individuals and we're always inspiring each other to kind of level up, right? So that is, you know, why it was never good, it was never a question of, okay, I want to do this by myself. Like, it's not fun winning by yourself. It's fun winning with your crew of your people, right? So I love the idea of having partners, right? That's um, such a good point and that's something I bring up, like, Anytime I meet with an agent who's just got into the industry and they're like, where do I start? Where do I go from here? Uh, my advice often is find someone in the neighborhood that you want to work, whether 
it's a suburb, Vancouver, whatever it is, find someone and just follow them around. Like try to team up with someone being on a team, the right fit of a team, I think is so valuable because let's say, for example, our team now has six agents. We did 120 deals last year. Each individual agent maybe is only doing, let's say on the low end, 10 on the high end, 45, 50 deals, but they're seeing 120. Correct. And every Tuesday morning we meet as a team and talk about if there's any unique situations that came up, a specific really one-off term that we had to add to a contract for this specific reason, we're sharing all that information so that everyone, even though they're not doing 120 deals, they're seeing 120 deals worth of contracts and negotiations. That is like a university in a box, right? Totally. You know, but it's like, like real life um, on the job training, yeah. right? Um, there's no other, there's nothing better than, than that. Right. And, uh, that way, you know, it, that way, if you're a new broker, you know, if you're a new realtor, a new broker, that's how you're going to learn. And that's how you're going to be able to find the ability to like pick up these deals that you never thought were possible. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if, if let's just say you're a new, um, broker and you want to earn the right to like land a $2 million deal, you can't expect to land a $2 million deal. If you're brand new, if you can't land a $200,000 deal, right? There's levels, right? So you got to like incrementally learn, right? Mm-hmm. And how do you earn the right to get a $200,000 deal? Well, if you're seeing one of your senior business partners um, speaking to a client a certain way to land that $2 million deal, you take that, ver- you take that client experience and verbiage onto your $200,000 deal, right? And then you build your confidence, right? Mm-hmm. And then you then uh, build that to, you then earn the right to do a half million dollar deal, Right. And then all of a sudden, when your time comes six months down the road or wherever it is, now you're in that category. You can earn the right to be able to discuss and work with that people. And obviously you can go from, you know, from here to here within weeks or whatever. Right. But if you want to consistently learn and build the business, there's you got to like move through, you know, the progression. Right. Mm -hmm. If uh, whether it's a mortgage broker or a realtor who's thinking of growing, starting a team. Any advice for hiring? Like when, like when do you need to hire? A well, lot of people are at that you fringe question. point, right? <laughs> but well, we you can, know, whatever, we can both share our thoughts on it. You have more people on your team than me. Yeah, but it's like you know they're independent sub brokers, right? right? So everyone does their own book of business, right? Mm. So well, let me ask you this: Then you're bringing on new brokers, just like we now have four other realtors on our team. What are you looking for in terms of personality, work ethic? How do you? How do you pick up on things in a 30 minute coffee meeting with someone and say, yeah, I want that guy or girl on my team? That's a good point. Um, well, we're called bespoke lending solutions. So it's mm. like, okay, you got to dress the part. <laughs> Starts with that, right? Um, <laughs> so I would not be welcome on your team, is what you're saying. I seen you in a suit, buddy. You could rock it like a champ. I seen it, man. Um, but uh, yeah, like it's, it, it, it comes with a certain level of, uh, of ideology or whatever you want to call it, right? But uh, like-minded people like to be around like-minded individuals, right? Like if you're hardworking and and you are you you have a knowledge about the space, you know, mm-hmm. we want to kind of have a conversation and see if there's a there's a mutual benefit from for from us on our end and also from you as well too, because they need to get whoever decides to join, they need to get some sort of value from the experience. If not, they're not going to stick around long term, mm-hmm. right? So the whole idea is trying to find a mutual benefit for everybody, right? 
So that's kind of like the the vibe that we want to see is like, okay, are you knowledgeable in this space? Do you have that type of professionalism, right? Uh, look wise, and you know, and also to how you treat the clients. Do you speak a certain way to your clients with respect, right? Do you understand the value of reciprocity, right? And, you know, because of those in, in the marketing, right? If you have those intangibles locked down, those are the fundamentals that will make you uh, a, a wonderful uh, broker. Um, so that's just my take on that. Um, but I am excited to discuss with you about, you know, um, support staff and mm. like leveling up and when is a good time to do all these things, right? Because that's uh, something that fascinates me, scale, scaling and, mm-hmm. and growing a business. Like, when do you do, when do you do these things, right? Because there is, you hit a capacity, right? And so we've had this conversation before and I can share with you kind of like my mindset on it, right? Um, and then we kind of go from there. Yeah. Um, I feel you try to take the business or your capacity to as a, a level that you can possibly do as far as possible for a, 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 a definite amount of time. So what I'm trying to say is if your capacity as a mortgage broker is funding, I don't know, let's say 10 deals on your own, mm-hmm. you get to that capacity, 10 deals on your own, and you could probably do 13 deals or so on your own, but your quality of service to your clients will be a disservice, right? Yeah. There's got to be a time where you can only run at peak capacity for a little while when you want to get yourself to the next level, right? So, you know, if you are a betting person and if you are very confident with your skills, once you start doing your five deals, then you can bring on help to get yourself to 15, 20 deals, right? But it is always a function of, okay, do we have the resources? Is the timing good for this or not, right? Mm-hmm. So, I think the only person who can judge that is whoever is in that scenario. And maybe they might have a line of credit put together. They can afford to bring on somebody and not worry about having the revenue to pay them. Right. All right. I think I was watching Million Dollar Listing. Uh, no, I think I was watching Ryan Serhant's vlog. And he was mentioning that he had a driver. Uh, his name is Yuri for the fans of the Yuri show. Yuri is a beauty. Yeah. So Yuri is his driver. <laughs> and... Um, he said, you know, before he was even making money, he would had Yuri on, he was paying Yuri a salary, right? Uh, because he said, I know that this was an important um, component of my business and I built it into my cost of being a realtor, mm-hmm. right? So that's the attitude, right? Because he could have like hustled and struggled and then made his money, then invested into having the driver, but he built it into his business model. And it, it was able allowed him to, in my opinion, be able to be a successful realtor at a faster clip than if he didn't have it, have it right. But everyone has their journey that they got to go through to finally figure out what the formula is for them. Right. Like my comment and what I just wrote down as you were talking, uh, is you need to re- reverse engineer your goals. Correct. So what are your goals? Is your goal to be a single agent that you know, you enjoy the lifestyle, but you work your ass off and you do 30 deals a year. Maybe you have one full-time assistant that helps you with paperwork and uploading photos and stuff and marketing, whatever it may be. Or is your goal to build a team and do $250 million worth of real estate in a year or, you know, whatever those goals are, reverse engineer them. Correct. And as you keep progressing, you're not going to get from zero to 250 million in a year, but as you keep progressing, as soon as you can afford to pay someone, to take something off your plate where you can be more effective elsewhere. So for me, what I really like doing is being in front of clients and negotiating and selling. 
I don't like doing paperwork. I don't like uploading photos. I don't like ordering strata documents. I don't even know how to order strata documents. <laughs> okay. Right? But as soon as you can pay someone to take all that stuff off your plate, I can do more selling. Correct. If I was uploading photos to for every new listing to Paragon, if I was uh, uh, ordering title searches and strata documents and all that, that's probably three, four hours out of my day every single day, five days a week, six days a week, that I'm not selling, that I'm not in front of people, that I'm not networking, that I'm not podcasting and meeting people. Like That's where I like that's what I really like to do. And that's where I see my value in. And so I don't think, nor am I very efficient at paperwork and all that kind of stuff is I think as soon as you can afford to do it, you hire someone to take something off your plate, whether it's your social, like creating social media, like we have a full-time social media marketing person on our team now, whether it's the, for realtors, strata documents and title searches and Paragon and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but I think, at the core of it, what you really need to take a step back and think about is reverse engineering goals. So coming up with where you want this business to take you, how you're going to get there, and then moving backwards. Uh, that is that is life in general. Like I feel like For sure. that is, you know, if you are looking to date a type of individual, then it's like, okay, where would this person be, you know, at this moment? Or what kind of crowd do they want to, uh, do they operate in? And where, you know, you know, I want to be there. And so I can meet this type of, like, uh, I like to hike, for example, and the person should be active person. So I will start joining a, a, a hiking club and, you know, I will be around people that like to hike. And then that, you know, kind of works to that, uh, that type of uh, energy mm-hmm. going into our business. It's the same thing. You're right. It's just like, okay, if I want to do, I don't know, a million dollars in business as a realtor, a million dollars as a mortgage broker, that works out to be, I don't know, 20 something deals funded a month, 20 something deals funded a month works out to be mm-hmm. average mortgage size of half a million dollars. So I need to be able to then contact 40 people in a month, right? Of those 40 people, I probably will be doing 30 pre-approvals and all those 30 pre-approvals, 20 funded deals, mm-hmm. right? So you're definitely right. That's how you work it, right? Mm-hmm. And you work the plan, right? Um, I guess another piece of feedback that I've noticed with some newer individuals in my time as a broker is we're result oriented individuals. We get paid for results, not effort. Yep. So what you talk about with Paragon and you talk about um, like, you know, loading pictures, loading pictures Mm -hmm. into the platform will not put a commission into your pocket, right? And so when you said that if you're able to find someone that can pay you, that can do that and allows you to do what you can't do best, which is sell and selling leads to a commission, mm-hmm. then we invest our time into finding ways to, so we can like earn commissions. Mm. I met a lot of brokers that will say, I am so busy. And, but are, what are they being busy with? They're mm-hmm. busy, busy, maybe driving to North Vancouver once, twice, three times to meet a client on the weekend. And the client says, oh, can you come back? Because my husband decided to take the kiss of soccer. And then they're like, yeah, no problem. And they <laughs> go back again the next weekend. That is not going to like give you a commission. And even if it does give you a commission, it's an inefficient way of earning your commission because you're seeing the same client mm. twice, right? So you got to figure out what your time is worth and, and operate accordingly, right? And so that's another thing too, is like, High value activities, a high, to me, a high value activity 
would be, for example, doing a presentation with a realtor partner mm -hmm. at a home buyer seminar where you can work, interact with 30 or 40 different people. And that yeah. would be two hours, mm -hmm. right? Or three hours. To me, that's three hours well spent opposed to, you know, driving back and forth. Like I said, if you live in the suburbs, driving to North Vancouver, trying to convince someone to like uh, do a deal or someone that who you cannot, you cannot determine if they are a client that wants to work with you um, and they kind of give you the the runaround, right? And then you're like, well, okay, maybe if I keep on dripping on them after five times, then I convince them to work with me. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's possible, but maybe they're just not into you, mm -hmm. right? So the I think a lot of people, especially early on in your career, if you're a few years in, you're gaining some traction, you're real estate wise, let's say you're doing 20, 25 deals a year. A lot of people are very concerned about their bottom number. So their paychecks. Whereas if the goal, and again, if your goal is to do 30 deals a year for the rest of your life and it's a super comfortable living and just co like, just maintain that, that's fine. But if your goal is to build something, if your goal is to build a team, build a business, you have to understand and prepare yourself to make less money short term. So example, yes, this year is down a little bit, but we have some, we've been super lucky enough to bring on some phenomenal realtors on our team this year. And if they're not happy, if, if they don't make a decent amount of money this year, even in a down year, they're not going to be with us for very long. Right? So instead of me being selfish and I am not even close to full capacity this year, but I could be, if I just took more of our clients on and was selfish and wanted to make a little bit more money this year, but I'm so much more concerned about keeping them happy so that long-term we can keep growing mm -hmm. and taking a huge pay cut this year. Mm -hmm. And I think that is super important if your goal is to build a business is the bottom line number every year can't be the most important thing for you. Well, I agree. You're the CEO basically of the business. And the difference is when you're the CEO and owner of the company, you have a vested interest in seeing um, when I say CEO, you're the CEO and the owner, right? Because mm -hmm. those are two different things, right? You want to see the business be successful the long term, right? And so mm -hmm. you're going to undertake um, activities to make sure that not only is the short term taken care of, but also the long term is taken care of, mm -hmm. right? And absolutely, if you're going to, because what's 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 going to happen is when the market turns around or, or anything, the market's not even down. Right. But like, like, you know, when the market gets really, really hot, right. You want to be able to have a crew of people who are primed and they know the market, and they know the newest minister market, they know their business that they can hit the ground running. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you are constantly cycling through um, new realtors and new individuals that doesn't know the systems and knows, then you're going to be behind and you're not going to be able to kind of uh, have full capacity. So, Absolutely. That's how you build a, like a long-term business, right? I remember I was, I was talking to a friend and he was telling me about the, one of the companies he worked at. And this company, uh, after uh, September, oh no, after the financial crisis in 2008, he said that the CEO said to everyone, do not worry, your jobs are going to be taken care of and we'll make sure no matter what, your guys are going to still be employed, right? And then here they are, whatever, 11 years later, people are loving this company because the company was able to kind of like, say what they said and do what they do. And people are loyal to them to a fault because they mm. took care of them for the long term, mm. short term and long term. Sorry. I think a lot of new entrepreneur business owners undervalue how 
powerful having good people on your team is. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, like that is, that, that is it because they feel that, um, that sometimes this people's skill sets are disposable, right. Or interchangeable. Right. But you really don't know someone's value until you have to rehire or restaff. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you got to go through that dance. Right. And it's a very painful thing. Right. Cause uh, training is not the most easiest thing to do. Mm. When you're meeting with someone new, let's say you're looking for a new admin staff or even a new broker. What, first of all, where did you learn to interview? Cause I assume you're doing a fair amount of interviewing now, bring yeah, new we people. Do. We do. Where are you learning to interview and any favorite like questions, topics to bring up? Mm. Um, I remembered uh, one of my a quick little story here. I remember one of like uh, one of my first job interviews. I uh, I was at SFU and I was in a co-op position, and they asked me to sell a pen to them. I fucking hate that question. You know what? And <laughs> it was the cheesiest thing. And I decided to do a, a literally a song and dance, and I was like, <laughs> "Buy this pen!" Like it was the stupidest thing. Um, so that's why I never do that in my questions, right? Um, just I don't know why that made me bring up that story, but mm. it was kind of interesting. Um, I think the question, the, the questions that we ask people is like, tell a little bit of, like, we like to keep them open-ended, open-ended questions, mm. right? Tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, you know, what did you like about your last job? What did you like about the, the you, well, what do you want to like about the job that you're going into? Mm. Because that gives us a little insight in terms of like what turns them off, what gets them excited and motivated, yeah. right? And we just kind of sit back and listen, right? And uh, we're still kind of like in our infancy in terms of like interviews and stuff like that. But we kind of have it down a little bit now in terms of like what the role description is, right? And and we also just want to put it out there. This is the vibe. This is the kind of atmosphere that we have. Will it be a fit for you just as much as a fit for us, right? Mm -hmm. And then people will self-select, right? You know, because if if they're if they are attracted to what we got going on, then it's like an easy. It's very easy because they want to be there, right? Mm -hmm. We no one like, especially in this industry, it's like you don't need to be here if you don't want to be here. So it's just very easy to do. So that's kind of like the game plan. My interviews, I try to take very conversational. So it's it's not so much questions. It's more like just trying to get to know them a little bit. And I don't know if you do this or not, but before every interview, I'll look at the person's social media. Oh yeah, for sure. So I get to know them a little bit. I know you kind of learn a little bit about what they like doing, whether it's like they like hiking. But can you trust like, their social media? Because is their social media authentic? It's hard to, because a lot of people, sometimes they do stuff on social media, but it doesn't align with their personality. Do you agree with that statement? Uh, yes. But I think you can also have a pretty good insight into most people's social media. So you think the majority of people's social media is an authentic representation of themselves? I think you can look at someone's profile and know what's fabricated and what's not in a lot really? of situations. Yeah. I don't, I, I, the jury's yet to be out on that. Cause I don't know because you know, I'm happily married right now, but I was a single guy. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I did, I, I did, I did the whole like, you know, you know, social media, you know, and kind of be able to like study whatever the person projected on social media, but it didn't necessarily align with how they are. Right. So that's mm -hmm. kind of why, um, you know, the whole 
the so, like reviewing their social media. I don't know if that really translates well. But what so, I can say, to, yeah. one quick, more yeah. quick on what mm-hmm. I can say is, if someone who has who's you're interviewing and you look at their social media and it's like complete like blackout drunk photos or whatever, it, that's a good sign that they have very bad judgment and we're gonna steer clear <laughs> away from them. So, well, that was what I was kind of getting to was checking out their social media to get an idea of who they are or at least who they're trying to portray. And then the interview process is confirm that. confirming or seeing how genuine they are, right? So asking them what motivates them, what they like doing outside of work. If all their photos are hiking and being outdoors and their first comment is like, I like sleeping in on Sunday mornings, like probably a little bit fabricated or if all their photos are them with their buddies drinking beer and the first thing they say is, oh, I really like running or like I like being active, then you can probably tell pretty quickly that they're not super genuine. Mm. So I like having the opportunity to compare the two. Do you think it spoils the interview because you looked at their social media first? Like, do you think there's value in clean slate, um, doing the interview with the individual first and then figure out what your opinion is of them. Then you look at their social media to like, you know, like, do you, do you think there's any value to doing that? Doing it that way? Mm, no, I like my way. <laughs> <laughs> you should try it. You should try it one time. Do the interview for, uh, okay, but I'm not judging. I'm not like, but you say you're not, you're not, I'm I don't not think... saying you're, you're judging, but you might be subconsciously influenced right before mm-hmm. you know because we all get influenced in certain way rightly or wrongly michael Ma- malcolm gladwell right like you know um people like make split split second decisions based on you know um you know their you know opinions right but at the same time in an interview if you're asking questions whatever say what motivates you in a service business it's easy for someone who is someone intelligent to say I want the clients to have the absolute best possible sure. service. Uh, um, whatever. I, I want the entire transaction to go super smoothly. I want them to give me a great review. You know, like all these things. It's so easy to say that stuff. So I think it can go both ways. If you do the interview first, you can have a fake image that someone's portraying to you. In 30 minutes, it's not hard to fake something. Sure. Uh, and then you're looking at their social media and that either will affirm or decline what you thought of them anyway. So I don't know. I think, I think social media is really important in terms of uh, personal brand, especially when you want to be self-employed in an industry like real estate or, or even being a broker. So I hold a lot of value on um, how people present themselves on online. Yeah. um, I just, I, I feel like people are getting, like social media is important, but then I feel like there's a lot of people who are using social media to like cultivate uh, a reality that's not really reflective of how they are. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure you've seen these people like, you know, on a private jets and they're basically like, you know, on a st- soundstage setting it up mm-hmm. kind of thing or whatever. That's not really what we're dealing with right now. Right. But like a lot of people are going to certain levels of trying to project, you know, a certain type of um, perception and then what it is. Right. So, uh, we try, I try to like not get sucked into that. Right. But it is hard because it's so much around us these days. Right. Mm. Um, but that's, yeah. wouldn't that be a valuable thing going into an interview to see 
obvious, like for what our culture is with our team and who we are, it's a lot of very humble, really hardworking, intelligent people who treat people well. So if the first photo I see is someone on a jet with a suitcase of hundred dollar bills, making it rain. Probably. Yeah. Probably (laughs) not this, like the right fit for us. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, it'll come out, it'll come out eventually, right? Like it's like it's, before or afterwards, social media creeping must be done, right? Like it, it's a, it's a prerequisite, right? You know, so it's like, okay, what's your LinkedIn? What's your username on, 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 on IG, right? <laughs> so we can kind of peruse it, right? Um, and I don't know. So, but yeah, like it's, yeah, it, it comes with it, right? Because it's like, I don't see, I don't know. You tell me, have you seen any realtors who are in the business that doesn't have a social media presence? Is that even possible now? Yeah. And they're are they top producers. I'm, I'm not like, talking, I'm talking about guys who are like in the younger demographic, like how you have younger guys who are doing well, medallion winners who are not using social media. Is that, is that, is that possible? Using social media well or using social media? That's a good question. Um, using, let's just say using social media at this point. In like, general, I yeah. think it's a prerequisite. To, it's like having a website, like, Whenever someone, let's say I meet Carl, uh, Carl's my best buddy. I say, Carl, you just bought a house a year ago. Who'd you use as your mortgage broker? And he says, Sean Francis, he was a great dude. Immediately, I'm looking at Sean Francis's website. I'm looking at your social media. If you have three posts and they're all of you like kissing your dog, Hmm. I don't know if you're the right fit for me. Although I do like dogs. It's just. I would assume you'd have a little bit more of a presence. If your website sucks or you don't have a website, I'm probably Googling mortgage brokers in Burnaby, mortgage brokers in Vancouver, whatever, right? Yeah. So I think it's a prerequisite that it's required. I'd say most of our clients are looking at our social media before they meet, even comment on our social media and and before they even have a chance to meet. And you're like, yeah, I, yeah i think i we just yeah that's really how it is like before you as soon as you get the referral the first thing that someone's doing is they're googling your name exactly seeing you know any, whatever comes up and to be mm-hmm. honest and i'm putting it out there to, for you and all the brokers we're even coached by the lenders that we're that we are doing deals to the first thing you're supposed to do when you get a referral or when you start working with a client is you google their name because there are some clients who are who've been uh, connected to criminal activity or whatever, and they're not the right type of clients for the lenders. And they, the broker could be held responsible for mm. um, uh, for things if you don't kind of, it's called know your client. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like looking at social media and what their reputation is online is like paramount for, you know, for everything. Yeah. So I just, I guess I feel like in your interview, or employees or whoever, right? Sometimes you, you, it's important, but you don't want to get it to be clouded, I guess. I don't know. So I've, I'd rather look at that afterwards, right? After I kind of had an idea of where things are, are going, if they're going to be a fit or not. And that kind of is like the icing in the cake or whatever. Interesting. Because I'm, let's say we post and we, even if it's a new realtor, let's say we were looking to bring on an extra, another realtor on our team. We have done some social media ads people are emailing or whatever. If we have a dozen people that email us. Oh, okay. I see where you're going with it. Yeah. Whether it's a resume or like realtors don't really use resumes. So whether it's an email, like 
I'm probably picking three or four and looking at social media and making my decision on whether I'm meeting with them based on whether they're active or not on social media. Right. Okay. I get what you're right? saying. I think, uh, I guess I would, you know, in my scenario, I hop on LinkedIn, right? Okay. And you kind of like your, your, your LinkedIn profiles, your living, breathing resume, right? Mm. And moving on to LinkedIn, I've, I've heard of, you know, through some discussion boards or whatever, like LinkedIn is coming back almost in terms of like being an, a hot, um, a hot um, platform to, for increased business is, is, what's your take on that? Have you seen that or heard that as well? Or, uh, I've heard Gary V talk about it. I, I think it's really just important and I don't do a good job of this, but I do think it's important to have a presence on all platforms because different people find different platforms more valuable, right? So whether you're, let's say you're an executive in a company, LinkedIn is probably pretty important for you. That's where you're probably looking for new employees. That's probably where you're posting job ads. That's where you're recruiting for your company. So if that um, executive is looking for a realtor to sell his home or her home, they would likely look me up on LinkedIn. Whereas a young couple who maybe one of them's a teacher, one of them's a contractor, they're probably not using LinkedIn. They're probably looking at our website and maybe Instagram, Right. probably not using Facebook. Older people maybe using Facebook. So I think it's important to have a, have a presence on each platform, not that you have to use them daily. But I think it's important to have presences on them. And I don't necessarily do that well. But I probably should take my own advice and do it. Like I have them all. You can only do so much, right? Like there's there's like a opportunity cost of your time, Mm -hmm. you you know. And I rather, I'm a believer of you pick your plan and you execute on it. And you kind of like, you die by that kind of thing, right? Because there's no, you're not doing any value to yourself or, or value to yourself by doing something half-assed right like you know so if you can just kill it in one space or two or three spaces that's a lot better than mediocre in five or seven different spaces because you know it's just like you need to get a little bit of weight and momentum behind you right what time you gotta go uh i I don't know how long long we're talking now (laughs) 7 40 uh a couple more yeah 10 minutes more because how long has it been right it's been like an hour hour and 20 hour 20 yeah. Yeah. yeah we're putting in a good shift here you got 10 more minutes? Yeah, sure. Okay, there's a couple more things. Uh, speaking of like stretching yourself too thin and focusing in on stuff, what what do you like doing prospecting wise? Like where do you find the most value? You've been an independent broker for four years. You've built this team. I I I really love doing my job. This is like, a, like I feel like I'm like one of the most fortunate people. So I like working with people that I can like help them and they can, they actually appreciate the, what the experience of working with me. But where are you finding people? So, so I'm finding people who need my help. I'm finding people who are in a niche. Like I'm finding people who are self-employed, who are extremely busy. But who, how are you doing that? Um, Is it like from my side of the industry, looking at mortgage brokers, I would assume building connections with realtors is super important. Correct. I would assume building connections with maybe mortgage people at banks who can't necessarily fulfill this client's needs and need to pass them somewhere would be right. also important. Right. But in terms of like end consumers, again, from a consumer perspective who uses mortgage brokers, 
online presence would be ultra important to me. If I wasn't a realtor, I would be, and I didn't have a referral or a friend who was a mortgage broker, I'd be Googling Burnaby mortgage broker or, you know, things like that. Okay. So you're saying how I prospect. Okay. So, or how, like, where are your sources of business coming from? So I think anyone who, who's a mortgage broker who's top, they have to have a stable of realtors that they work with because that is like the lifeblood of a broker because it just makes sense. New buyer, broker, realtor, let's do business, right? So for sure, realtors. And I know some realtors, um, some the dynamic between some um, brokers and realtors are like broken. And, you know, I've heard some realtors say, I don't want to refer to brokers because if the transaction goes sideways, the client blames me. That's the feedback for some realtors. And some brokers are saying, I don't want to work with realtors because... You know, the realtors are like divas and they X, Y, Z and all this and that. Right. So it's like kind of like that dynamic. But if you're wanting to be a successful partnership, you need to be able to work with realtors because they have buyers in their hand. They have live buyers that need they they need it. Right. And so, you know, when you're a good broker that can like make the realtor's life easier, like then you're going to get business because. The realtor at the end of the day doesn't get paid until the deal gets approved and funded. Mm. And so therefore they have a vested interest in having a relationship with a broker that can be open with them and say, you know what, this deal is going to go ahead, have faith, go ahead and put your best foot forward. When you put this off, you're not going to embarrass yourself because I looked at the numbers, it's going to happen. Yeah. Whereas if you go, you allow the client to choose whatever realtor they want to work with, a realtor or broker they want to work with, and you don't really have that connection, and the client is talking to not necessarily another mortgage spe- broker, but like someone at the branch that's only Monday to Friday and kind of is like a junior individual that kind of is like very used to cookie cutter deals. And all of a sudden there's a co-applicant on the deal that kind of that adds a liability that deal doesn't work anymore. And then they're like freaked out like that does happen. You want to be in control of your success, right? So that's why I try to like market myself to uh, a select group of realtors and say, you know, this is the value proposition I have. And I think the next question is like, where do you else you get your business from? I try to, I try to like, as a broker, I try to operate like a realtor. And so what that means is I try to attract clients that come to me directly versus trying to go to the traditional means of accountants, lawyers, divorce, uh, divorce lawyers, um, realtors. Do people do that? Sorry, what? People, people market specifically to divorce lawyers to get. There's business there to be had, and like <laughs> rea- rea- so rea- realistically, you know, there's that's a market that needs to be taken care of, right? Yeah. If someone's been married for 15, 20 years, right, and um, um, now they're on in the market trying to like, um, uh, you know, get a home, and they've never done this before, and we're talking about you know either the the housewife or the house husband, right? Yeah. That they need someone that's knowledgeable that can help them walk them through this 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 uh, this very stressful step, right? So yeah, that that's a niche, right? But if I try to operate like a realtor and try to attract clients that come to me directly, it it works in two two phases. It allows me to be able to bring clients to my realtor partners, right? And it also allows me to be able to work from the client from the day one. I can help prepare them for success. I can tell them what they need to do in terms of to fix their credit, um, in terms of like, don't quit your job, or this is the job you need to like aimed for to get this type of income to qualify and we mm-hmm. can work together and move them along, right? And then there's a lot more 
stickiness in terms of like staying with me, the broker versus them coming, I'm meeting the client halfway along the process. So I try to find any opportunity to look for buyers um, or sorry, for clients. Like, you know, at, at my gym, for example, I try to be helpful, right? Or, and it's not like it's like I'm soliciting them. It's just like, you know, I'm, it's, I'm putting it out there. It goes, I've been able to help people like you in this circumstance. So perhaps there might be a fit for you, right? Or, you know, I was even, you know, talking to like my family doctor and I was like, you know, I was saying, you know what? I was able to do this for this type of individual, you know, and then they're like, oh, like, do you have a card? Like, you know, like, so that's what it is. I've tried to find a niche and identify people who are self-employed. Um, and then I tried to sh- demonstrate to them how I've been able to help value to uh, people of that type of industry. So maybe it might be a fit for them. Right. And then operate like a realtor, start to market to a, a demographic area. Right. And then you can start to get some traction in that space. How powerful is networking? That's the lifeblood of anyone who's successful, right? Isn't that ridiculous? Like when I was a kid and even after in university, I wasn't really that outgoing. I wasn't really the type of person, if I haven't seen someone in a couple of years and they're walking on the other side of the street, I would just kind of like put my head down and keep going. Whereas like I go out of my way now any, to say hi to people if I haven't seen them. Even yesterday, uh, yesterday I met a client at a brewery, hadn't seen someone in like a year or something like that. And he didn't see me, but like go out of your way to say hi to people. You know what? The I'm power the of being way. nice to people is unbelievable. I know sometimes like, you know, sometimes my wife is like, why are you bothering these people? Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? You know, I just, that's just my nature, right? Like, it's just like, I'm, I'm generally excited to see and hear from people and hear what they've been up to. Yeah. Right. And people like, I think they say this, some of the sweetest words you can say to someone's their name. Totally. Right. Um, you know, if you, and then people sometimes, and if you can show genuine interest in how they're doing and kind of relate to them on a human or level, remember things right about them, unique or, about them, right? Like Sean, I haven't seen you in a year. I, I know you had a kid. How's he doing? Right. Yeah. Like those like, and, 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 and as a father, you're so proud of your kid and, and, yeah. and it's just kind of like, Oh, like this guy really cares not only about me, but he cares about my son. Right. And it's not even, that's just life. Right. Because people want to do business with people that they care about. Right. And people don't want to disappoint people that care about them and they, and you care about them and they care about you. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when you start finding genuine connections, right. And you could do business with people who you care about and you like, then it's just, it, it just, everyone's better off. Right. They take, they take your advice, mm-hmm. right. Because you, you know, because they, they feel like you care about them like family. And so they're like, okay, this guy, you know, is coming from a position of, Hey, he cares about me. I'm going to really listen to what they have to say. Yeah. You, you say obviously connections with realtors is a big portion of your business. Yeah. What out of the gates four years ago, what was the strategy or how did you, how did you build those connections with realtors and who are you trying to attract as realtor partners? I just people who are like-minded, um, mm-hmm. you know, like for example, we've done a lot of business together. Right. And it's just like, <clears throat> just like, uh, there's this, this, a level of trust right? yeah. and, and respect that comes along with it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, people that, you know, hey, we can respect and trust his advice. And so we're comfortable, you know, taking his advice and comfortable sending our clients to him. Because mm-hmm. any anyone that comes across to me from a, any realtor or any uh, COI, I don't know, CI call, is called center of influence, is I don't want uh, as just as important, just as that person or that referral is important that individualist sending me that deal is almost more important or just as important because 
that's this that relationship i really respect a little bit right because it's when you put yourself out there referring someone to you it's like that means a lot right mm. and so you want to like honor that and make sure that it's respected how do you how do you build those connections though because obviously from my perspective as a realtor probably get for some reason, it doesn't seem like so much anymore this year, but in the last few years, it seems like three to 10 phone calls, emails, messages from mortgage people a week. Yeah, we should work right? together and yeah. this and that. And like, yeah. yeah, let's do this. But how do you turn that first interaction from a negative? Because a lot of times for me, it's just like, stop fucking bothering me. <laughs> I got my three people. Like, I'm not going anywhere else. I don't care if you're God. Like, it yeah. doesn't matter to me. I love my people that I work with. I get it. I can't blame you because the people you work with are rock stars. <laughs> um, but no, truth be told, when I first started, because we all started to start somewhere, yeah. right? And it's hard. You got to like, kind of like, you got to like wiggle your way in, right? And yeah, I don't know, anyone who's starting new, this is a strategy I would kind of like suggest for them, right? Because I'm not new anymore. So this strategy doesn't apply to me, right? Because I could probably take a meeting with a realtor and they should, they could probably Google me and they know that, hey, this guy's a legitimate broker. Yeah. I, I can take him seriously. Yeah. Um, but if you're a new broker, they don't know you or what you're capable of, right? So what you probably need to do is you need to divide up the, your realtors in categories. New to industry realtors, realtors who are um, on, the, on the come up, and then well-established realtors, right? And the well-established realtors probably are not going to necessarily work with you because you're a brand new realtor. So you're not going to probably focus your time in on the, those type of individuals. But you might want to like spend 10 to 15% of your time who, with them because then that might be the odd situation where their guy is like, let them down or they're just in that you caught them on a good day, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, you might pick up one of those type of individuals and then you can like be their go-to guy going forward like all it takes is just one one good opportunity right for some reason this just popped in my head but there would be no harm for a new broker to take someone an established realtor top one percent guys person that's done whatever does 100 deals a year why not take them out for coffee at least ask them out for coffee and say hey what's important to you in a mortgage broker i'm just kind of getting my career started i want to know like what I can do to work with other people like you or work with the next you. You know what? Right? That's, Don't necessarily that, yes, solicit to correct, them, correct. but ask them what's important to them, what they <clears> like <throat> about their people that they you work with. You know what? With. That's a, that's a, that was, you kind of took that out of my head because if that is the right strategy, because if you are, people who are really uh, established, they also have like a need to almost like give back to the industry. A lot do, yeah. yeah and they're like, you know what? they would see you when you first started in January, 2019 to see where you are January, 2020. And you might not earn the right to get any referrals from them in the year, year one, but year two, they're like, you know what? We saw Sean, he was new and he, he asked me and I told him what to do. And now he's doing what I said. And now he's done, let's say 25 deals. Mm. I'm going to give him a chance to do one of my deals the next year. Right. But mm. all it takes is kind of like building that relationship. Right. Yeah. And you got to, you know, it's probably going to be more, you the newer broker approaching them than them approaching you because that's just how it works yeah. right but most people will probably approach the veterans once or twice and they give up right but you got to have this tenacity right because you can spend your time if you're a new broker with new realtors right but if this new realtor does not doing any business and then you're just kind of wasting your time right 
because then you're all basically you're just kind of like hanging out with each other and then it's like it, it's not it's not a fit yeah or if you find a realtor on the come up right that is like doing the right things that has this energy about them that is always at their open houses has a wonderful social media presence presents themselves well you can tell that they're going to be a star mm -hmm. and you can be their guy and then you can kind of grow together then that's a wonderful thing as well too so mm -hmm. if you kind of like um, strategize in terms of like how you want to work with these different um, key individuals. I think that's how you grow a sustainable business, right? Mm -hmm. I think it can like for us when I look at listing presentations, it it's gaining a client. So be similar for you guys, you on your side of the industry as well. The first thing I'll always add, like I I say to our team, the most important thing in our listing presentation. I'll, or even asking, what's the most important thing in a listing presentation? A lot of realtors will say, well, I need to talk about my marketing strategy. I need to have a good evaluation. I need to provide them with a ton of information. I'm like, you're fucking wrong. You need to listen to them. Yeah. You need to ask them questions. You need to say, you know, have you sold before? Yes. Okay, well, what was your last selling experience like? And then likely, in my uh, experience, they're going to tell you everything that was wrong with their last realtor. Mm -hmm. And you Perfect. do opposite, exactly opposite right? of that. They did open houses every week, which was great, but I never knew what happened. Like they never communicated with me. They never sent me an email afterwards saying they had five people come through, zero people come through. I just didn't really know what was going on. Perfect. In my head, communication is important to them. I need to talk about that in this meeting. Uh, you know, and often they'll have multiple things or they'll say, it was great. The reason I liked them was these things. Perfect. Or, um, you know, it took a while to sell but they provided me with evaluations every week and I felt like I knew what was going on in the market and it was just a slower market. Perfect. They value information. And then you, and I did not know this at the beginning and in the first couple of years of listing presentations, I was not good, but I've learned that listening is the most important thing and adjusting how you present information to them based on what they're looking for, right? Yes. So yes. some clients don't give a shit about what's sold. They're just... They've researched us on social media. They've looked at our website. They know we do a ton of business in, in the suburbs of Greater Vancouver. And they just say, what is my place worth? I just want you to tell me, and I want you to tell me where to sign, and I want you to take care of it because I know you guys are good. Okay, it's going to be a quick meeting. I'm going to tell you it's worth $7.99. We're going to list on Monday, or we're going to do photos on Monday. We're going to list next week, whatever. Other people want a ton of information. Other people want want you to address their concern of communication. Other people want you to address their concern of realtors taking advantage of people because we have this terrible reputation, or a lot of us do. And so immediately I'll say, these are the three things in our listing contract that protect you. One, cancel at any time. You only pay me anything if it sells, blah, 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 blah. So I don't know exactly where I'm going with this point, <laughs> but I think, it, uh, I think the reason that I thought of that uh, was because of that question and like, how do you get started? Take people out for coffee and ask them what's important to them, right? So like, if you're a top realtor, I'm a new mortgage broker, I'm taking you out for coffee and I'm saying, why do you like these, who do you work with in the industry? I work with Sean Francis. Why do you work, what do you like about him? What does he do that, you know, you trust him so much? And then you're just learning and saying, okay, well, when I meet John Smith, who's a new uh, realtor, or maybe he's been in the industry for three years and looks like he's going to be the next guy, what do I need to provide to him that he's going to stick with me? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll further along to that uh, comment about listening to what they have to say, mm -hmm. 
I forgot wh- where I learned this, but it, it was the the personality test, right? You have to, you know, those people yeah. who are able to determine what type of individual you are before you have the meeting will have a wonderful, a better outcome than not. Mm-hmm. Because there's some people that need to slow to make a decision. So you need to give them all the information first and they have to process the information and then they will be happy to move ahead. But if you are a salesperson that doesn't give them the information and says, but I'm Sean Francis, don't you know who who I am? Mm. Like, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, I need this information. So you're not my guy, mm-hmm. right? But if you go into the meeting with no uh, expectations, but just listening to what kind of energy the person puts out and who the decision maker is and whatnot, mm. then it'll, the, the, the meeting will flow that much better and both both sides will get a better outcome out of it, right? And so some people are very, um, yeah, like they need to touch and feel or some people need to like process it or some people need to have written, it's like I met a lot of clients in there, like they're asking me to like give them the scenario like written down, right? And I got to write it down and it's not really like that much fun because it's like extra work. But if for me to get the the deal, that's what I got to do. And exactly. I write it all down. I give it to them. They take a look at it. And the next day um, they come back. Right. Or, you know, they can use it to go to their home, their home branch or whatever. Right. But nine times out of 10, they respect or appreciate the effort that I've put forward. And so I've earned the right to get the business. Yeah. So you got to like give them what they want. Right. Mm-hmm. And then add value to it. Obviously, you guys are doing really well this year and having a record year in a down market. What uh, what can you guys improve on? Pretty much everything. <laughs> like, right? is there something you're focusing on? Because the they, reason I ask yeah. that question is because there's one part of our business where we feel like we're losing business because we're not doing it very well. What's that? Database marketing. Mm-hmm. We can we do it fairly well, like fairly well in terms of our industry, but we feel like there's a lot of left opportunity on the table. That's true. If we can excel at that's that. A, that's a, you know, how you grow your business by either getting new clients or like, you know, you know protecting, right? yeah, yeah. Pe- protecting your back end and working with your existing client base. Mm-hmm. Right. And so a lot of people, they're like, got to get more clients. And then they're like constantly marketing and buying um, like sales lists and whatnot mm-hmm. when their list is like <laughs> their past clients. Right. So, um it's a it's a yeah it's a double-edged sword right um so that's that's good feedback you know i think we all can do a better job of trying to contact our clients right but sometimes we are uh, you know uh, in this industry you're more reactive than proactive right but those brokers those realtors who can be more proactive you know um when i was at the bank you know we learned a lot of you know wonderful techniques at the bank bank and one of the techniques is at the bank is like you gotta um you build in, uh, build in white space, or you got to build in space to do your calls, right? Mm-hmm. Like even though the market is, when the market was smoking busy, you got to like build in like an hour or two hours or whatever to like um, touch base to your existing clientele, even though there, there's no business out of it. Because now when the market is down, there was like, you know what, we really appreciate Sean. He checked in on me and whatever. So that's the kind of attitude you have to have. And and that's something that obviously, you know, I could be better at and, you know, people, the office could be better at. Right. So that's something that we can be better at is that's back to what I said early. Right. Remember when we started talking about 2019 and how it's a slower year, Yeah, the people that are doing well in 2019 are the people that have been putting in the work 
for in the past, right? Yeah. In the last five years. Yeah. And it's those types of um, prospecting, I call it prospecting, uh, tendencies or routines, I guess, that make the difference in slow years, right? I definitely think so. Mm-hmm. I like think the client, you know, small stuff like the client appreciation event, right? Like I think that's a wonderful thing. That's something every year I'm looking forward to mm-hmm. coming to, right? Um, Christmas cards and yeah, they're like a pain and some people look at it and they tr- t- toss it, right? Mm-hmm. Other people are like, they, when you start doing it, they're like expecting to get their Christmas cards or expecting to get the calendars, right? Mm-hmm. Like that was a tradition that, that is meaningful, right? Yeah. And so, you know, every single year I come around, I'm like, oh, I said to myself, oh, I'm not going to do the calendars this year, right? But I end up doing it because there's inevitably someone's like, you know what? We really appreciate that. And then yeah. sometimes I feel like they, they don't care, but they, or, but they, they do, people do want it, mm-hmm. right? So you got to do the small stuff, right? Continue to do the small stuff, which will lead into the big stuff. Mm-hmm. And so for us, we've notif- we've like noted that as something we can really improve on, and especially in a slower year for us in 2019. And so for us, that looks like we're back on the train of birthdays and anniversary cards. So every past client, if they've moved into a new spot, they're getting a yearly anniversary card with like a scratch and win ticket or a Starbucks gift card or something like that. Cool. Birthday cards. And then like following up with people and just calling them out of the blue and being like, Hey, Sally, I haven't uh, talked to you in three years. You moved into this house here. How are you liking the neighborhood? It's super awkward. But if you have an excuse to call people, it makes it less awkward. So I I 100% agree. But I guess whenever I've like, I don't call all my past clients all the time. Yeah. But if I were to call my past client, it would be a good conversation because I was involved in every single one of their transactions. Yeah. Like I, I know, I know I can recall their circumstance, mm-hmm. right? Once I look at the file of what we did. So the conversation, that's a good thing, right? Because you can talk to that and then you can kind of build off of that. And, yeah. you know, a year later, how's things going or how, you know, we, I know we did that refinance and we, you know, like how was that, how was your life changed since that, where you've been able to be able to build back your credit or buy the investment property that you wanted. Right. Yeah. So it, it, it's really important to be involved in the file in some way, because as you start to get busier and you start to scale, I think that, you know, there is a, a human touch that should be involved, right. Be it, I try to call every single client after the deal funds just to check in, right? Mm-hmm. And say, thank you for choosing me because just as much as like I did something for them, they did make the choice of working with me. So I am appreciative of that, right? Yeah. And and just say, you know what? Like, congratulations on your next journey, right? Because buying a house is like a big step, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, refinancing, you know, you, you wouldn't imagine how uh, happy or relieved people are when I'm able to put together like a refinance for them and consolidate debt and put it into one payment, it gets like a wonderful, people are really happy to have that peace of mind. Right. And I'm I'm so happy to be able to provide that service for them. That follow-up phone call is huge. Do you do anything longer term though? Um, I I've done some client, like some client events, right. Yeah. Um, you know, spring break, you know, I did a client event spring break, uh, at, um, extreme air park. And then, um, my clients were invited and they can bring their clients in there. And, and that was really cool because it was an opportunity just to kind of, uh, uh, the kids go play, the parents have like two hours to themselves, mm-hmm. right? And then they come back to pick up the kids and then we have a chance to chat with the parents, right? Yeah. And, you know, but that takes a lot of coordination and stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? But that's something that's been good. And we do the Christmas cards, we do the calendars, mm-hmm. we do uh, thank you cards, birthday cards, yeah. right? And then the phone calls, right? I think that's the next level stuff. 
And like what we're planning to do for next year is we're trying to have four events. So that ambitious. Al- well, okay. Who, so who, I'll tell you what they're. Well, now Sean, we're back to uh, hiring, right? <laughs> Good point. Uh, so we have a super organized admin person right now who is phenomenal, and Does she's she have really... any other uh, friends that she can send by. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's not for hire. She has a great job with us. Uh, so we want to do like a family day event. Cool, family day long weekend, something for like kids to come. Exactly like what you did with the air park, something like that. Uh, the, we've got the steel and oak event every year that we do in July. Uh, this year we're doing a pumpkin pickup. Oh, cool. Yeah. And really what we're trying to create, obviously it's great to like see people on a quarterly basis or whether they come to one event a year, doesn't matter, whatever. It's nice to be able to follow up with people, but for realtors on our team, it's awkward to call people out of the blue. So we want to give them opportunities to make it less awkward to send someone an email saying, Hey, Karen, uh, hope you're loving your new townhouse. You moved in in October. Uh, how's the neighborhood? Any feedback for us? By the way, uh, it's whatever, June 15th. We're doing our annual uh, Steel and Oak party this uh, coming Sunday. We'd love to see you there. Let us know if you're, you know, it's just a little bit less awkward when you're inviting them to somebody. That is very smart because, you know, at the bank, it was like, you know, we had, you know, we had to do our proactive calling, yeah. right? And the clients are like, hello, Mr. Smith, it's Sean Francis. And yeah. then they're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so bad. <laughs> um, but, uh, but when you're like, hi, Mr. Smith, it's Sean Francis from the bank. Just want to follow up with you. We have a client appreciation event that's coming up in the next couple of weeks. You know, just want to make, oh, and then the walls just come down. Exactly. And then you can riff off of that moving on to like other business because there is needs there and they, but the, you know, it's people don't want to be harassed or, you know, they think no one wants to be sold. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But when you start like bringing value and just kind of like, you know, talking a little bit about you know, what we can provide for them or whatnot, they appreciate that. So sometimes when I make these calls to my past clients is I have no agenda. It's just, you know, just, Hey, you know what? Just want to check in how things are going, you know? And then all of a sudden if something comes out of it, great. But like that is, so that's something that I, for 2020 is, is my goal is just to kind of contact at least, I don't, I don't know what the formula is. I think it's, I don't know if it's quarterly or every semi-annually, but past client, just, just checking in. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there's also something that too, with my network mortgage alliance that we do is there's this, um, there's this, uh, this link that all past clients get where they get coupons and discounts for products and services in the mm-hmm. lower mainland. And so when they log in to like access this coupon, um, they know that it came from their broker, which is me, which is another mm. like positive association and, and ongoing adding value. So stuff like that. The power of follow-ups. Yeah. What do we talk about today? Networking, follow-ups. Networking. Two biggest things. Networking, follow-ups, um, systems, efficiencies. Mm-hmm. Powerful stuff, man. There was a lot of good stuff in there, Carl. Lots of good stuff. I got lots of good tidbits here. Carl, what was your favorite tidbit? Uh, the whole networking thing, because you guys are 100% correct. It's it's everything. You I mean, you can go to college and do all that stuff, but like the best thing that you can do at college is network. Absolutely. And get to know people. You know what? That Absolutely. sometimes pays for the, the that in itself. You're really right, because of the, the relationships with the professors and the people that you're, you're your lifelong friendships, sometimes that in itself is even more valuable. 
Yeah. Always a pleasure, man. That hey, was man. a lot of fun. Sounds good, man. I'll have to do it again soon. But absolutely. Thanks for having me. Say hi me. to Ari for me. Give me, a, give me a high five. I will. I will. We're heading out of town in the next little bit here. So uh, uh, he's going to be international Ari. Enjoy the getaway. Okay, thanks, buddy. All right. Later. Thanks. Cheers. <laughs>